As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome back to the show that brings you conversations with leaders, evangelists, pastors, thinkers, apologists, and cultural influencers, helping you think through and make the case for faith in today's world. Well, today we're continuing a conversation with historian Tom Holland. This was recorded at Illuminations Europe, a conference earlier this year, which supports the work of Bible translation around the world. And in the second part of our onstage conversation, Tom shares why the story of Jesus dying the death of a criminal slave was the historical catalyst for the modern day anti-slavery movement. Uh, The second part of this conversation was recorded with me at the Illuminations Europe conference in Scotland. By the way, before we get into it, if you can leave us a rating and a review, it helps others to discover the show as well. Mr. Rick of Staten Island wrote, love the apologetic content. I never try to miss a chance to hear Dr. John Lennox speak. Uh, God has truly used Dr. Lennox in a mighty way. One of my favorite apologists. Don't miss this podcast. Hey, why not go one better? You can find out more and get loads more bonus content and a regular newsletter by signing up at premierunbelievable.com. Become part of the Premier Unbelievable family. For now, enjoy the second part of my conversation with Tom Holland. this back in a sense to to the subject that we've been thinking about across this this weekend the bible we've been looking at the way in which the bible is today transforming and uh, impacting cultures all over the world as people receive it in their own language i mean moving the story from as it were the the first century to that point in time when the bible began to be translated into a common tongue what what for you has been that sort of particular if you like revolution in in that sort of series of revolutions what has been the the result of that in in the west well, I, I, I think um, the Bible is clearly, I mean, it's, it's a compendium of texts. Mm. So originally, in, in its Greek form, it meant books. It didn't mean a book. It comes to mean that in Latin, a, a sing, singular, a book. Um, so let's call it a book. It's the most influential book that, that's ever been written, clearly. Um, and it's been interpreted in many ways. And the range and variety of ways in which it's been interpreted are... Um, an expression of its influence. Mm. Now, when it, in, in the Reformation, when it comes to be increasingly translated into, um, I, I, into various languages, um, it, it takes a really distinctive form in England in the 17th century. Um, and I say England rather than, um, rather than say Scotland. Because in, in England, it's, it's focused in that extraordinary decade after the execution of Charles I, when essentially, because Cromwell is, I mean, he's, he, 
he's not on the side of the Presbyterians, really. He's, he's, he's in favor of, of allowing anyone, basically, to, to say or think what they want. Mm. And so for, over the course of that decade, you get uh, Quakers, you get um, uh, Baptists, you get uh, all kinds of people emerging in London. And their understanding of scripture derives ultimate, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of Lutheran, it is in the mainstream of Protestant thinking, but it's very, very kind of radically enhanced. And it, it's founded on the idea that what matters in the Bible isn't the words on the page, it's how the spirit distinctively influences you so that your understanding of what is on the page can then transfigure and change yourself but also your society and in the long run the world. And the classic example of how that then does indeed go on to change the world um, is how it enables radical Protestants to reinterpret the concept of slavery mm. as institutionally a crime against God. Now, if A.C. Grayling were here, he would, of course, point out that nowhere in the Bible is slavery as an institution condemned and that there are quite a few sections, particularly in the Old Testament, where slavery is licensed. Um, and so he would say, well, how on earth can the Bible be used to justify abolishing slavery? Then it must have come from Aristotle or something, is probably what he'd say, <laughs> which is nonsense, because Aristotle at no point, you know, I mean, he absolutely thinks that slavery is, is justified and right. How is it that these radical Protestants in the, in the, the late 17th through, through the 18th century, Quakers and Baptists and evangelicals, how are they able to do it? Because it's because they feel that the Spirit has come on them and has revealed to them the absolute truth of the Bible, which at its heart, and it was mentioned in that video, it goes to Genesis, it's God has created man and woman in his image, and therefore he has given to every human being an incredible inherent dignity. And if every man and woman is created in the image of God, then no man can be a slave. It's also founded in the radical, radical fact that Christ himself suffers the death of a slave. Crucifixion is paradigmatically the death of a slave in the Roman world. And so therefore, this is a kind of a very, very ancient theme that goes all the way back to the fourth century. Um, the, uh, the, the brother of Basil, the founder of the hospital, he, are, he, he looks at this and says, um, well, if Christ suffered the death of a slave, then slaves must be closer to God than, than, than the owners, and that must therefore mean that slavery itself mm. is wrong. Mm. So that's part of the tradition. Um, and, and he looks, and, and it's the, the, the message of Paul that, um, you know, there is no slave or free in Christ. For most of Christian history, mm. people have said, have thought, well, slavery is inevitable. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like illness or sickness or poverty. It's just, you know, it's part of the fallen world. But these radical Protestants in the 18th century you know, they, they read these various biblical passages and they felt the rushing of the spirit. They felt a great Pentecostal flame illumine their understanding of God's purposes. And that fire caught and blazed and spread. Mm. And it spread through the English-speaking world. It led a British foreign secretary in 1814 after the de seeming defeat of Napoleon to go to the Great Power Congress in Vienna and to argue that slavery should be, um, that the slave trade should be abolished. Uh, in due course, it, it, it led them to um, abolish slavery itself, the whole idea of slavery itself. Um, and in the long run, it led them to um, demand that uh, even people who weren't Christian abolish it. Mm. So the Royal Navy starts patrolling the African seas 
the, the seas off Africa to stop that trade going in, kicking sand in the face of the Ottomans, all this kind of stuff. And, and that idea, that, that idea that this understanding is a kind of fire that's been illumined by the spirit, does indeed kind of spread across the world, through the Protestant world, through the Catholic world, mm. into the Muslim world, into the world beyond. And of course, it's facilitated by the fact that this is the period of, of Western supremacy, of European colonial supremacy. And so there is a kind of paradox there mm. that the license to get rid of slavery also provides a license for the British, for instance, to, to butt their way into Africa mm. or to, to mm. you know, tell the Ottomans yeah. what to do or whatever. Mm. But that... That again, the, 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 the complicity of God's purposes mm. with empire yeah. is perhaps one of the stories that you get in the Bible because nothing in the Bible is <laughs> served up easily on a plate. Absolutely, yeah. There's lots of messy histories in the Bible, that's for sure. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. You mentioned that the crucifixion itself was in many ways, strikingly bizarre in the ancient world, that that would become the central symbol of this movement because it was the astonishingly degrading death of a slave was what the, these people claimed their Messiah had suffered. Tell us a bit about that, and I'd love you to tell us about some of your own experiences in today's world of, of how that's come alive for you as well. Yeah, so, so I said as a child, um, the New Testament was kind of less appealing and that I was on the side of Pilate and, and the Roman soldiers. Ladies and gentlemen, how wrong I was. Um, <laughs> because the more I studied the Romans, the more I, I came to appreciate exactly what role crucifixion had played. And essentially, crucifixion was the equivalent of, a, a crucified person was the equivalent of a billboard advertising Roman power and specifically advertising the power and the right, and indeed the responsibility of the authorities to, um, to publicly humiliate and kill those who opposed them. And there were two classes of people. There were rebels in, in Roman provinces, and there were slaves who, who, who rebelled against their masters. And crucifixion was the fate visited on these people because it was seen as the worst imaginable death. It was unspeakably painful. Uh, if you think of images of Christ on the cross and you, you see the ankle, you know, decorously crossed and the nail driven through the feet or through the ankle, um, it wasn't like that. We know because we've had um, an ankle bone was found outside Jerusalem in the 60s. Another one was found um, in England uh, just before Christmas that it was, the nail was driven into the side of, the, 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 each um, foot was placed on the side of the cross, so the cross is there, it's put there and it's driven through and driven through. So you're, 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 you're publicly exposed, there's nothing to hide you, you're not wearing a loincloth. Um, you, you, you can't move your hands, you can't fend the birds off as they cluster around you, as they gather on your head, as perhaps they peck out your eyes. Um, you, to keep yourself alive, you have to keep hauling yourself up and down, so it's excruciatingly tiring. All of this is public, it's visible, and you hang there and you are advertising the power of the empire that is doing this to you. So the weirdness of Christians saying that someone who suffered this fate is in fact in some way part, he's not just divine, but he's part of in some strange way that, you know, in the age of Paul is still kind of trying to be worked out, part of the one creator God who's fashioned everything 
is so strange. And it's really important to emphasize that the strangeness does not lie in the claim that a man can become a god, because lots of people become gods in the opinion of the Romans. Augustus, in whose reign Jesus is born, you know, he is the son of someone who's become a god, Julius Caesar. He is the, the adoptive son of the deified Julius Caesar. And when Augustus um, rules the world, he does so as a prince of peace. And this is good news. And his good, the good news is proclaimed across the world. And when he dies, he rises into heaven and he sits at the right hand of his father. And this is a cult that is being promoted throughout the Roman world during Jesus' lifetime and in, in, in the time immediately afterwards. And the weirdness lies in the fact that Christians are saying it's not someone who's ruled the world. It's not a great conqueror. It's not a great empire. It's someone who suffered this particular fate. And I understood all this abstractly, intellectually. But then uh, I was about three chapters into writing Dominion, the book on, on the history of Christianity that Dustin very kindly mentioned. Um, and I went to Iraq to make a film about the Islamic State and why they had particularly targeted Christians and Yazidis, a religious minority in Iraq, for, for persecution. And I went to a town called Sinjar, um, which had been the center of, of the Yazidis. Um, and we went there, and uh, it, it had been liberated from the Islamic State a, a few weeks before. The Islamic State was still kind of a mile away across open land, so with, absolutely within mortar strike. And we were in this town, and it was a place where women had been enslaved and killed if they were held not to be sufficiently attractive to, to be deserving of enslavement. Men had been killed and some had been crucified. And to stand in that place where these, these sufferings had happened and where the people who'd, who'd inflicted these sufferings were still absolutely a presence, it kind of opened up for me this existential abyss where I suddenly realized I was in the presence of people who viewed the cross as the Romans had done, as a symbol of power. And it brought home to me just how stupefying the revolution was that had transformed for me and for everybody uh, in, 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 in a world shaped by Christianity into the opposite. Mm. And if you think about a world in which the cross symbolizes power, I think you get a sense of just how utterly transformative the Christian revolution has been. It's extraordinary, and, and it's, it's, it's a powerful reminder of just in that symbol alone, the way in which Christianity has transformed our view of what it is to be powerful. You know, the fact that we believe in the, the equality of all people, that we should look after the poorest and most vulnerable. These were not givens in the ancient world. Um, not at all. This, this was something that, in a sense, you would say, Christianity and specifically that, that thing at the center of it, that molten heart of Christianity, as you put it in the book, this, this is kind of essentially what Christians took. Not always, obviously, consistently. Often, in many ways, you know, it was, it, they did not follow what, what was there in the beginning, but it's at its heart. So, a lot, a lot, so I, I came back and I rewrote the opening of, of my book to, to focus on the crucifixion. And a lot of Christians, they've said, yeah, but what about the resurrection? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, I, I'm not writing a work of apologetics. I'm not writing a work of theology. I'm writing a work of history. And as I say, it's not the resurrection that is weird. You know, the soul of Augustus went up to heaven. It's the fact that it's a guy who was crucified. And that seems to me the thing that is really, really historically mm. profound and shaping, mm. you know, has mm. shaped everything mm. as it is. And I think that one of the things that this also brought home to me was that in a sense, we have, and I say we, all of us in the West, 
have, I think, become anesthetized to what the cross actually meant. Mm. And, and because for us, a cross often serves just as a symbol of Christianity. You know, you wear it around your neck and you think of it perhaps as a, a symbol of, mm. of, of, of your identity as a Christian. But to actually have to kind of face up to what, mm. what crucifixion mm. meant and what, it, therefore, it means to say that someone who suffered that was God, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it opens up vistas. I'll maybe leave it to others to ask you over a, I don't know, a, a glass of whiskey Please later, what, what, what you, where you stand now on the metaphysical claims. But it's been fascinating to talk about the history of, of this. Um, as someone who has been very influential, um, you know, you have a large Twitter following, many people have read the book now. The, I know that the podcast is has, having millions of downloads. What would you like to see as, as you see, the, as it were, the story of Christianity perhaps being lost to today's generation? How do you hope to see, to remind them, I suppose, of, of actually what it is they actually believe, even well, though they don't realise it? I, I think that so much, uh, basically, our, our sense of, of, of morality and what is good derives from the Bible more than from any other single textual source. Uh, and the question then comes is, if we don't have the Bible, can we still have those beliefs and values and morals? And it's a huge question. That's, what, that's a big question that Friedrich Nietzsche mm. asked. Mm. Mm. And it's a question, I think, that is open. We don't know the answer to that yet. Um, but I would rather not experiment with that. I would rather that people continue to have the familiarity with these texts, with these stories, with these, you know, and it, it is so rooted in stories. Mm. You know, Jesus, among many other things, was the greatest short storyteller who ever lived. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's that basic. A, a world in which people are not familiar with the narrative of the Passion or with the parable of Good Samaritan or whatever, or the, the story of Exodus, I, I think risks, in, it, it's kind of like, um, Getting rid of all the nutrients from the soil and just hoping that the flowers will continue to bloom is my feeling. Can you give a round of applause for Tom Holland? I really enjoyed these conversations with Tom Holland recorded earlier in the year at the Illuminations Europe conference. And if you want more from Tom, do check out his book, Dominion, and indeed his own podcast, The Rest is History. But for now, thanks for being with us. If you want to support this show and all of our other podcasts and resources, you can do that. PremierUnbelievable.com. For now, thanks for being with us. See you next time. Been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.